I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Today we have an encore of our conversation with Lee Shear, Director of Teaching and Learning at the Office of K-16 Initiatives of CUNY, the City University of New York. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Amy Halpern-Lapp. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Lee Shear. Lee is the Director of Teaching and Learning at the Office of K-16 Initiatives of CUNY, the City University of New York. Our focus today is the Debating U.S. History Program. Welcome, Lee. Thanks, John and Amy. It's great to be here. What is the Debating U.S. History Curriculum? So Debating U.S. History is a curriculum and teacher learning program for the New York City public schools, although it's available to everyone and we have people sign up from all over the country. And it's designed to do a whole bunch of things. One is to help teachers shift the teaching of U.S. history from presentational mode to inquiry mode. And this is for the required 11th grade U.S. history class um, in New York State. So that's kind of the the big pivot that we're trying to do with teachers. And we also have all the materials to help them do this. So by inquiry, we mean starting with real live questions that historians have about American history and having students engage with those questions by using primary documents to answer the question themselves. So they're learning to interpret the past. Mm. And we present a very clear framework on how to do this. So uh, we support the kind of disciplinary literacy of what does a historian do when they read a document and kind of model these really clear steps and repeat them throughout so that they can kind of on their own look at the past and the present with the critical lens. I could go on a little bit. We have some other goals in there as well, trying to expand the kinds of stories that you read about in U.S. history and include ones that are typically left out of a traditional course. And so it becomes a culturally relevant curriculum. And we also you know, convene teachers from around the city. Often teachers teach in these smaller schools where they're the only U.S. history teachers. So they get to work with their peers from across the city and share different techniques of modifying the material for their classrooms to make sure that all students have access and can succeed in the class. Yeah, so that's that's kind of it in a nutshell, debating U.S. history. So we're definitely going to have some follow-up questions about some of that. But from CUNY's perspective, why was it important to develop a high school history course? Well, this came out of our work in our unit in general works on transition from secondary to post-secondary learning. And we had worked with some 12th grade curriculum to try to prepare students for the challenge of college academics. And we had worked with an English language arts curriculum specifically to help students become exempt from remediation before they started CUNY. And CUNY has actually since then gotten rid of remediation and now only works with co-requisite courses and things like that. 
but the idea was to better align high school and college curriculum. So we worked with a 12th grade course and we had gotten some funding and the funder asked, you know, 12th grade seems real quite late. Couldn't we, you know, kind of go earlier into the high school career and work on aligning curriculum and give students the opportunity to potentially take a college credit course in their senior year, which is, you know, we already have a large dual enrollment program. So um, that's kind of how the work with the 11th grade course got started. And the idea is to be very explicit about kind of skills development and make the kind of thinking skills visible and practiced throughout the curriculum so that students are working on developing college level skills. So we worked backwards from the 12th grade initiative and ended up with working with this 11th grade U.S. history course, which also has a state required exam. So it's kind of also a bit of a demonstration project in that, you know, there's often resistance. If there's a state exam, folks really kind of, and teachers, there's pressure to teach to the test. And in this inquiry curriculum, we're demonstrating that you don't have to teach to the test, that inquiry develops skills, and that higher order thinking and inquiry and debate does develop student skills. And they, in developing these, they can perform well on whatever standardized test is required. How is this a more ethical way to teach history than the way U.S. history is traditionally taught? I think in a, in a bunch of different dimensions. For one, the focus on skills development and student-centered learning is, you know, it's like higher quality teaching than a presentational mode and so engages more students and allows more students to perform better and to have access to this important material. So that that's kind of one dimension of it. I think related is the ways in which it brings in less told stories and so allows more students to kind of relate to U.S. history. It's not just like the founders emphasized. Students get to recognize themselves in the in the stories of um, the past in this country. And yeah, I think those are the two ways. I mean, in general, although it's not just stories, we also go out of our way to present a framework for understanding race and racism and in general, how power works in in U.S. history and in the present so that students have, can understand themselves as actors in U.S. history and understand how power works so that they're not seeing themselves, you know, as, as deficient, but the power structures that might have marginalized their communities and limited their choices so those are, um, yeah, that's our kind of ethical framework for the course. What are some examples of inquiry-based learning in the context of the course? Well, most of our lessons are inquiry-based and, you know, it's a survey course. We have to have like many inquiries We kind of go from one to another pretty quickly and then ask teachers to decide where they're going to slow down and, and where they're going to go faster. But I guess an easy an easy example is, you know, we ask students, was Lincoln a racist, right? And kind of start with that provocative question and then go to primary sources, also giving them a sense 
of the context, um, right? His views changed over time and they themselves grapple with these primary documents and kind of answer, you know, debate it, have cumulative evidence. You might start with like one quote from Lincoln and draw a conclusion based on that talk, you know, in conversation with their peers and then add some more evidence and come to another hypothesis and again, kind of return in a kind of academic controversy framework. And that's one approach that we have. We might do an inquiry about how should a particular event be remembered, whether it's like the bombing of Hiroshima and looking at multiple perspectives on this, including from some of the victims' population, looking at representations in different textbooks from different countries, for example, and asking students to interpret on their own. So we try to kind of leave the, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion what happened in the past or how it should be represented, but you're looking at a whole bunch of different perspectives and trying to determine for yourself using the evidence what is the most accurate um, representation of, of events? So students obviously come with a variety of reading levels. What are some of the strategies that the teachers are using to help students who may have a lower reading level deal with primary documents? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different strategies, you know, usually referred to under the banner of differentiation. You can differentiate the text itself, right? And that might be having different levels of the same text. So you start with a, a complex primary document and cut it down for size. If you're looking at three or four different documents in one 40-minute class, you'll want to take kind of the heart of it, even if it's only like three or four sentences. And you might have a few different levels of that same document for different students, it is a, you know, a science. This is something that we go into in depth in our training sessions of like, what do you want to make sure to leave in, in a document like that and support, provide supports. We provide glossaries. We have a whole approach to uh, vocabulary and that's based on the science that says you need kind of like multiple exposures to a word to understand it. And so you don't kind of just tell students like, oh, go look that up, but you can provide them a glossary, right? So it's not like trying to make them work really hard for the meaning, but give them multiple support. So we would start with a simple matching exercises, a glossary below the text, and then like afterwards, another simple vocabulary, like really easy two-minute vocabulary exercise at the end as well. So pre, during, and post you know, vocabulary support, different levels of simplification of the text. You're paying close attention to making sure you're challenging students and not simplifying it too much. We also encourage teachers to model the reading process so that they'll do kind of a think aloud where they'll put a document you know, on the screen and talk through how a novice reader might approach it. So what is the thought processes that you have as an expert reader that are automatic? And as a teacher, you kind of articulate them step by step to model a piece of the reading and then ask students to kind of do the same. So that's another strategy. We also, you know, try to engage the text in multiple ways. So if a, a student 
definitely get different things out of reading the same text, but then you will, you know, provide some context and supports for understanding the ideas in there and have the small group and class conversation. So even if they didn't get it all and reading it on their own, they get some support from the class and understanding the ideas and can kind of go from there. So we encourage teachers and we practice this in the community to, you know, provide a whole bunch of different supports. Hopefully teachers, many of the teachers have have a team teacher as well. So they'll engage in some small group work, extra vocabulary support with students who need it and things like that. So we also, you know, this is, this is an ongoing theme in our training. So we'll have like multiple sessions, some that will go into other supports like recorded audio, you know, read alouds for some of the texts as a potential support for some students, if that works. And we, you know, have some short videos that help kind of introduce the context before going into the inquiry, which is the big challenge of a history course, right? Is that to understand primary sources, you really have to have some sense of the context. And so you kind of have to present some context in a kind of mini lesson before delving into inquiry. So we use video and visuals a lot for that and even start a unit with um, simple visuals to give them some sense of what we'll be talking about in this unit. So lots of reason. So what are the key skills and strategies that students take from the course? Probably the the most important set of skills and strategies are the history, the ways to kind of read a historical document. So we are inspired by the Stanford History Education Group has kind of standardized those steps. And so, you know, the first one is to pay attention to the source of the text. And that's that's kind of really what distinguishes a historian reading something. They'll go right to the kind of that information of who was the author, when was it written, do you know anything about their background, and what then might you predict this person would say, and what kind of text is it, who are they responding to, etc. Do you think that might make it biased in one way or another? And these are the kind of historical thinking skills that actually the the regions is starting to test on. So paying attention to source where where a text comes from and what implications that has for for its meaning is, is super important and helps students also helps us all to look at whatever we're consuming with some skepticism and figuring out the reliability of the source. So I'd say the skills as they laid out, as Shag lays them out, is like sourcing, contextualization, close reading, which is the same kind of reading that you do in an English class, right, of looking, paying really close attention to the text, and then corroboration. So it's not just one text that you need to look at in order to understand the past, but looking at things from multiple perspective and trying to put them together as kind of a puzzle to understand the events. So yeah, sourcing, contextualization, close reading, and corroboration. I think the historical thinking skills are probably the most important. And being able to assess reliability, which is kind of related. Do you find, I mean, it seems that one of the really interesting things about historiography is that it becomes clear that a lot of times there aren't definite answers. 
even on factual questions that, you know, what actually happened. Um, do you find that students come to feel comfortable with the idea that history isn't just one set of very all agreed on events that happened one after another linearly, but that there's a lot of uncertainty about it and that historians are still figuring things out even maybe, you know, a couple of centuries later. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if I'm asking that very well, but I'm just really thinking about the idea of students shifting from sort of the idea that everything is known to the idea that, that a lot of things aren't known. Yeah, that's it's a big shift and it can be a struggle. It's one of the main goals of our course. And we kind of have some little assessments along the way to see how well students are kind of grasping that concept. Um, I think students do often seek the right answer. Right. And I think that's really detrimental to learning. Right. Or if you're always looking for the answer that your teacher wants you to spout and students do kind of seek that. I think it's partly depends on on their educational background. But I think there is a lot of teaching that does seek this kind of right answer rather than allowing students to kind of explore the complexity behind whether it's history or or what other other subject they're studying but we we try to dig deep on that and from the very beginning uh you know the very first lesson is when does america american history start and they look at different points they have like a whole list of potential starting points for us history and get into a kind of debate over which is the right date, right? 1619, 1776, when people, humans crossed the Bering Strait, where would you start the story and what are the implications of that? Really tries to kind of on the very first day engage them in the concept that history is contested and there's a lot at stake in what the answers are and what the story says and they have a stake in how the story is told as well so that's that's like hammered on again and again in the curriculum but there is some resistance to it and it can be a little discouraging too right and that is part of the shift to college level understanding is that the world is very complex and even historians as they explain things they you know write a monograph it takes a whole book sometimes to explain the complexities of one event that might take up, you know, a line or two in a high school history textbook. Amy asked before about, you know, the relationship to ethics. And it seems, and you were talking about why this is in fact a more ethical way of, of teaching it. And it seems that students would also find themselves grappling with ethical questions as as an integral part of the conversations. Is that something that teachers talk about when you get together in, in your professional development programs? Yeah, I think, you know, we see them in some of the short debates or um, often there's like a spectrum, you know, do you agree or disagree? There is 
even in thinking about like industrialization and treatment of workers, I mean, they we do get into the kind of big questions of history, right? Of what are some of the costs of progress and what are different perspectives on the responsibilities of government? Those are all kind of ethical questions there, right? How FDR perspective on government versus Hoover's perspective on government and how that is a kind of eternal question in U.S. history of what the role of government is and should it be concerned with the well-being of its people or just in, you know, maintaining infrastructure <laughs> now be perceived, you know. So I think those are the questions that engage students and that's where we try to hit these kind of universal ethical dilemmas that are kind of woven throughout U.S. history. Let's talk about some of the logistics of the program. Uh, how many teachers and high schools are involved? Right now we have, I think, about 20 high schools and about 45 teachers, something like that. And yeah, we gather usually 20-something teachers about six or seven times a year in all-day trainings. And uh, we have the opportunity to look at student work and see how students are, you know, interpreting the assignments and what might be the next good idea for a next teaching step based on um, student work. We go deep on the core strategies in the curriculum so that teachers are comfortable with them and give them an opportunity to practice somewhere in a supportive environment. We lay out the the framework for understanding race and racism, which, you know, as I mentioned, is core to the program and needs some explaining. And yes, teachers get an opportunity to really learn from each other. You know, they sit at tables and we have opportunities for them to, to share some of their strategies. We usually feature a teacher presenting something to their peers and model new lesson material or new strategy, things like that. So yeah, we come together about seven times a year for a full day trainings. And then we visit their classrooms as well. I read that you encourage history teachers in the program to collaborate with English language arts teachers. What does this collaboration look like? We got our start in that kind of collaboration when we were working with both English teachers and social studies teachers and did a lot of work to integrate literacy strategies into the curriculum. And we encourage teachers to collaborate with their, with their colleagues in the English departments in part on the literacy strategies and the more universal across a school literacy strategies are, the more effective they are, right? So we have integrated a whole bunch of strategies from the writing revolution, which is an approach to reading and write, well, to writing, starting with the basics and, and moving through essay writing that many of our schools had already adopted. So we encourage them to, we present a specific strategies around some things, but we encourage them to, to check with their ELA colleagues to make sure they're not asking their students to learn a new annotation strategy, for example, in every classroom or a new 
outline structure for an essay, you know, if they've already kind of adopted one. And we also encourage them, if possible, to collaborate with the same grade ELA instructor they can support by including literature from the error. Usually in 11th grade, it's a U.S. literature class. So we definitely encourage them to you know, work with them on supporting like contextual understanding by using some of the literature and vice versa, right? They'll have some contextual understanding for their English class if they're from their social studies class as well. So, and this year we've been encouraging kind of working on project-based learning with social studies teachers. And as I mentioned before, like choosing the spots in the curriculum to go a little bit deeper. So in that vein, we really encourage them to work on the projects with their English department colleagues as well. So how do schools um, become part of the project? Oh, they can contact us from our website and kind of sign up for the year ahead. Often we'll hear from teachers who have discovered the curriculum online and and ask how to become part of the professional learning community. And then we'll ask them to contact their admin to see if they could sign up. It's There's a modest fee for the six professional learning sessions. And we also offer some materials to go along with that if needed. So we contract with schools about now, kind of like May or June for the coming year, and they just sign up with us, you know, and again, teachers can use the curriculum for free and sign up on our website to download the materials. And if they want to participate in the professional learning community, it's fee for service and they sign up directly with us. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to add? Um, well, I don't know if you've heard, there's a, a brand new regents exam. There's an attempt, you know, they've revised the U.S. history course and tried to make it a little bit more performance-based or at least skills-oriented rather than one big trivia pursuit kind of exam. And this is a, a like highly anticipated exam because it's never been seen. It was supposed to roll out four years ago or three years ago. And then COVID hit, but then last year they canceled the exam because they said there was some question on it that they feared would traumatize the students who had just experienced the shooting in Buffalo. And they never revealed what the question was. They just canceled the exam, which was really a shocker. It's never been done before. So we've yet to see this new exam. And everyone's dying to know what that question was. I don't know if we'll ever know. I think the Daily News filed like a Freedom of Information Act um, request based on it. But yeah, but we our approach to the curriculum is that teachers have so much work to do in their classrooms to uh, customize everything, to reach every student. And they have many different levels of students in their classroom to do all the grading they have so much work to do in the classroom that this curriculum is attempts to kind of relieve the burden of also designing your own curriculum and writing your own curriculum from your back. We encourage students, you know, teachers to, to modify, but to start with a high quality curriculum with great materials, multiple perspectives, inquiry built in that also actually prepares students for this new exam. 
um, that finally asks students to flex some of these skills on historical thinking and think about reliability and things like that. So we're trying to kind of also show that even if you have a standardized test, you can design a class that is a rich learning experience, that's student-centered, that's collaborative, and that's inquiry-based. Thank you, Lee Shear of the City University of New York. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thanks, Amy. And thank you, listeners. Check out our new video series, What Would You Do? A collaboration with Dr. Mira Levinson of the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Ethics. Go to our website, ethicalschools.org, and click video. In the first case study, a teacher using action civics faces pushback from a parent. The goal of this series is not to provide right answers, but rather to illustrate a variety of ethical viewpoints. If you found this podcast worthwhile, please share it with a friend or 10. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.